Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you all for, for joining us this morning for, for worship. It is good to, to be with you and be together this Sunday morning. want to point your attention to a few announcements in your bulletin uh, as, we, as we begin this morning. Tuesday, growth group. Uh, so before you get ready for Thanksgiving and get everything situated, come join us. If you're a part of that Tuesday group, come join us at the Parsonage for growth group on Tuesday evening. Thursday, obviously, is Turkey Day. And so we'll be enjoying some, some turkey. I hope everyone has a good good holiday with their friends and family and loved ones. On Saturday, we'll be decorating the church for Christmas because next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. And so we are excited about Advent. Advent is always a an exciting season because it is a, a season of anticipation. Uh, as, as the church, we, we gather for four Sundays uh, ahead of Christmas looking forward and anticipating the birth of the Savior. And so as God's people, we celebrate his first advent while we also wait for his second one. And so uh, with that in mind, for our advent Sundays, we will be doing for our children's story, the advent wreath. And I know that we have one person signed up for next week, uh, but all of the next three advent Sundays are open. So if you would like to consider, or please consider doing, uh, signing up for, for that on the children's story sign up. There's, there's a sign up in the narthex on the table. We need someone to, to do the, the advent wreath, uh, three more times. Now, it is not up to you. I will send you, uh, what to read, scripture, what to explain, and what the candles represent and everything. So it is really just sign up and volunteer to do it, and then lead, lead the children in lighting the, the wreath that way. If you have any questions about it, just let me know. Uh, but we need, we need sign ups. The last announcement I have, uh, well, two announcements. One, uh, we do have the final numbers that came in from our missionary sale last Sunday. And so from that, we were able to raise $4,700 even. Um, so thank you to all those that, that supported and came out and enjoyed the food and enjoyed the, the bazaar outside. It was a good turnout, uh, good sale. And the last announcement you'll see there in the bulletin, choir practice is picking up on December 1st. So if you're in the choir or would like to be in the choir or are considering about being in the choir or are looking for something to do on Wednesday nights, choir practice. Uh, talk to Lynn if you have questions. Uh, I'm sure she'd love to have as many people come as she can. Any other announcements this morning? Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Jess. Any, any other announcements? Well, let me, uh, as, we, as we turn and begin our, our service this morning, I want to read to you from, from Psalm 63. Um, it, is a, it is a psalm of, of seeking, a psalm where, where the psalmist is coming. I, I believe it, it is, it's David who, who wrote the psalm, and he is seeking the Lord and he writes this psalm in the middle of the wilderness when he is on the run. He is not at home and he's not surrounded by comfort and he's not surrounded by loved ones. He is alone in the wilderness and he's thirsty. 
and you can hear the, the thirst come out in this psalm. So he, hear this, this psalm this morning. It says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. I was reminded of a song this morning, uh, getting ready for, for church this morning, and just being, being reminded of the newness of God's mercies and the newness of his salvation to us. And so here we are this Sunday morning and we're gathered for worship. Let me encourage you. As the song I was listening to sang, Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. But his mercies are more. Pray with me. Let us begin our worship service this morning. Father, it is true that our sins, they are many. But it is also equally true that your mercy is more. And so because of this truth, because we have so many sins, and because you have so much more mercy, help us this morning to thirst for you. To seek you. As in a, a dry and weary land where there is no water, help us to be satisfied in your presence. So, Father, we, we pray that you would join us, that you would send your spirit to your people this morning, and that we would be able to worship you fully and completely in, in openness and honesty and spirit and in truth. And that we would do so by singing your praises. We would do so by proclaiming your word we would do so by celebrating the gospel of our Savior Jesus. Be glorified among your people this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing together this morning. Uh, our first hymn is hymn 137, Worthy of Worship. Please stand and sing.
It is true, He is worthy of worship. And now we get to remind ourselves what exactly makes Him worthy of worship as He has revealed Himself in His Scriptures and to us the truth and wonders of His Gospel. And so to celebrate this and to remind ourselves of these truths, we recite the Apostles' Creed together. Following our Apostles' Creed, we sing the doxology, which is this almost spontaneous song of praise and worship to the Lord. And so I invite you to say the Apostles' Creed and then to sing the doxology and praise with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. continue singing hymn 471 as the deer.
Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to grab it. Uh, if you don't have one with you this morning, pull out a phone, grab one of the blue Bibles on the end of your pews, uh, and turn with me to Deuteronomy. We have been in Deuteronomy for most of this year, uh, I think going all the way back to February. But this Sunday will be our last Sunday in Deuteronomy until after Christmas. Uh, we will begin a, an Advent series where we will look at the first chapter of John's Gospel and, and look really at, spend four weeks studying what it means that Jesus, the, the God of the universe, being incarnated and, and dwelling among us in flesh. And so this morning, uh, appropriately so, our, our passage as we've come to, to this passage in Deuteronomy is about a king. And so it is, it is a, a, good, a good way to ramp up to our study of Advent this morning. I'm thankful to, for, to God for his word this morning. Look with me in Deuteronomy 17. We are going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The grass withers. Flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we come to you. We we stand before the King this morning. We do so humbly. Knowing that you are King, knowing that you are God, we know also that we are neither of those things. So, Father, as we come before you, as we come to your word, we come humbly. God, we also come with longings, and we come with desires, we come with distractions, and we come with worries, we come with anxieties, we come with fears, we come with sin. Show mercy to us. As we study your word this morning, give us grace. Help me, Father, that I may speak clearly the the mystery of the wisdom of God that has been revealed in Christ. To your glory and not mine or anyone else's here, 
but to your glory. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What do you long for? It's an interesting question. It's, it's, different. it's a different question than what do you want, because longing implies a, a length of time. It is a longing. What do you long for? Something way out in the future that you're desperately wanting today. As a kid, maybe you longed for Christmas and birthdays so that you could open up presents and have this great party with all of your friends. But to long for it meant that as soon as Christmas was over, as soon as the birthday party was over, you were ready for next year's. You were already longing for the next one. As an adult, maybe you long for a relationship, finding that that special someone. Maybe it's kids and a family or retirement. You long for a new job, a career, a home, better health. You long for seasons to end and new seasons to come. You long for them because they take such a long time to acquire. But how many of you, have you, knowing what this longing feels like, how many of you have longed for something only to have it and find that your longing is still somehow unmet? I mean, here's this thing that you've been longing for, that you've been waiting so patiently and maybe impatiently for, and you finally have it within your fingers and... This it? You're just, you're just standing there left wondering, is this what I've been longing for for so long? Well, in this passage in Deuteronomy 17, we have a law that's a first of its kind in Deuteronomy. You see, so far, everything has been required. It is God saying, you must and you must not. You must and you must not. You must and you must not. But here we have a not a required law, but a permissive law. It's not you must, but you may. Israel longed for a king. God knew this. He knew this before they ever entered the promised land, that the time would come generations later that they would look and say, we want a king. Give us a king like all the nations around us. They they longed for someone to rule over them, to lead them in in victory over their enemies, to to bring peace throughout the kingdom. But as you read through the Old Testament, you find that Israel's longings for a king are left unsatisfied. Because each king just fails the people in some respect or another. This morning, as we come to Deuteronomy 17, I, I want to show you what God required, what, what God restricted and what God required of a king in Israel. But ultimately, these restrictions and these requirements went unmet in all of Israel's history. It left the people waiting for a king, for a true king who would finally live up to this standard given to them in, in Deuteronomy. To finally satisfy the longings of God's people. And so this is what we're going to do. I want to show you the three restrictions that God put on a king, and I want to show you the three requirements that God made of a king. So first are the three restrictions. Restriction number one, not many horses. Not many horses. 
And we see this in verse 16. It may sound like a, a strange restriction for a, for a king to not have many horses, but consider this. In the ancient Near East, horses, and really specifically chariots, were the premier weapon in war. I mean, without chariots and without sufficient horses, no army could hope to succeed in any battle against an army that did have them. And also, Israel is this nation of nomads. I mean, here they are in Deuteronomy. They're on the brink of the promised land. They just spent the last 400 years in slavery. So, not soldiers, slaves. They wander for 40 years in the desert. Again, not training soldiers, not having horses, but really pack animals. And now they are going into a land to conquer it. They, they, had no, they were a, an army of exclusively foot soldiers. They didn't own horses. They didn't even have them for war. But their enemies did. Their, their enemies had all of the horses and chariots you could possibly imagine. And consider how, how Israel's interactions with these enemies turned. Egypt. Upon leaving Egypt, Israel is wandering away and they come up to the Red Sea. And who comes chasing after them to get back his slavery workforce but Pharaoh? And what is Pharaoh riding? A chariot. And his entire army is in chariots. And they are pursuing these slaves, these freed slaves. And how does this battle end? With Israel standing on one side of the river and the chariots in the bottom of it. Because Israel is victorious. How? Because God won the battle for his people. He brought them through safely and crushed the chariots of the Egyptians. Then we have the Canaanites also having great armies of horses and chariots. And still God promised in Deuteronomy that they would have victory against the Canaanites. Because he would be the one fighting for them. Israel's future enemies down the road, Philistines, Assyrians, Babylonians, all had armies of horses and chariots. And their victory, Israel's victory, would once more in those days depend not on the strength of Israel, not on the strength of horses, but on the strength of the Lord who fights for them. And the question remains throughout Israel's history, would they rely on the strength of the Lord who fights for them? Or will they be tempted to rely on their own strength? See, before we really get to their answer, we should consider this question for ourselves. How often do we rely on our own strength to save us or to get us out of difficult situations? We have this mindset that is so deeply ingrained, it is almost imprinted and burned into our hearts, where our battle cry is not, help me, but I got this. This week, Eddie and I were, were cleaning up some, some tables and chairs from our carport, from our growth group when we were meeting outside. And, and we were loading them. Eddie and I were loading up the chairs and tables in the back of my truck. And I, I couldn't help but, but think of it. Eddie did a great job. He was helping me, being, being very, very helpful in this. But at one point, we picked up this. We went to pick up the big white table and load it into the back of the truck to take up back to the fellowship hall. And Eddie said, Daddy, I, I can do this. I, I, I got this. And, and no fault of his own, I, I, I said, Eddie, I think this table's a little bit bigger than you are. Uh, let, me, let me help you. And Eddie did, did great. He said, okay, that sounds good. And together we picked up the, 
the table and put it, put it in the back of the chair. But I can't also, in that moment, help but think of how I was when I was his age and would not have accepted my father's help and would have said, no, 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 Dad, I got this. I can do it. And this table would have subsequently fallen on my head as I lay crushed beneath its weight. See, when we rely on our own strength, when we cry out, I got this, we are essentially telling the Lord, your strength is no good here. I got this. And this cry becomes our greatest undoing. I mean, maybe this is why Jesus told his disciples to be like little children. Because children only really know how to ask for help, how to depend, how to rely on someone who is stronger and more capable than they are. It is only when we get to those wonderful teenage years that the independence becomes such a great joy. Now, you see, this cry of, I got this, not only will it undo us, it will lead us down some dark roads that we never intended to be on in the first place. Look, look at uh, the second half of this verse. Because Moses says, you shall, he shall not acquire many horses for himself, in verse 16, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Now, this may not seem a little... Anything unusual in English, but the Hebrew, it's awkward. It's, it's just an awkward translation. But here's the gist of what the second half of verse 16 is saying. It is Moses commanding future kings not to send Israel, and by send I mean sell, sell Israel back to Egypt in exchange for horses. This, is, this verse has to do with a, a potential future slave trade. Where Israel's kings would one day look back at Egypt, their former oppressor, and say, we'll give you our people if you give us your armies. They would trade their own people for soldiers, for horses, for chariots. I mean, can, can you imagine if our president told Iran, you give us your nuclear weapons and we'll give you our lower class? We would be outraged at this idea that, that someone would trade, that a leadership would trade people for weapons. And yet here in Deuteronomy 17, the king has to be told, don't even think about it. Because such is the path of those who rely on their own strength. Such is the path of those who think, I got this is the only way that I can get through it. Such is the path of the king who acquires many horses, and this is why it was restricted. Don't have many horses. Restriction number two, not many wives. Don't have many wives. We see this in verse 17. And really, you can't read too much of the Old Testament before you find someone having multiple wives. It is a pandemic. Across the scriptures, it is terrible. And it would almost be able to, it would be more difficult at times to argue that God did not want this for his people because so many of his people had it. But there is never a situation in Scripture, never in Scripture, where multiple wives is a good thing. Never. It is never approved by God. It is never commended. It never works out for any of the people involved. And when you eventually make it to the kings, it only gets worse. 
But consider a few of these examples that, that you may be familiar with in Scripture. Abraham, because of Sarah, cast Hagar and his own infant child out into the wilderness. Because his wife is jealous. Jacob, who married two sisters, only to have their rivalry intensified because he loved Rachel and hated Leah. Go to David, and David married Saul's daughter, who he despised. And then we have Bathsheba. Has that situation worked out well for everybody? Solomon, David's son, is is sort of the premier example of it because he had not one or two or three, but 700 wives. And on top of that, 300 concubines. See, why, why is this? Why is this restriction, this not many wives, why is this restriction for the king? Because you see, you and I, and, and the king of Israel being no different, you and I will follow our eyes and believe what is in front of us, and we will miss the dangers that are lurking beneath the surface. See, Moses is clear. He, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. That is the, the impetus. That is the driving motivation behind this requirement. Many wives will turn the heart of the king away from the Lord. You see, wives would have, have served. The reason why so many kings and, and throughout Israel's history married so many wives, the reason Solomon had so many wives, is because wives would have served to bolster Israel's political alliances. Kings would marry daughters of other kings under this banner of, of long-term peace and long-term friendship between our two countries. And as these foreign wives would come into Israel, they would have also brought with them their own foreign gods. And see, in addition to breaking the the marital covenant of one man, one woman, together in unity, this multiple wives restriction brought with it this deadly threat of being led away from the Lord and towards idolatry. Now, while I would hope that no one here needs to be told, don't have more than one wife, there is still this this needed restriction for us from this this passage. You see, we, like the kings, we must not allow ourselves to compromise biblical integrity even in the name of things like outreach and evangelism. There is no situation in which you and I are ever called by God to turn away from what is written in this book, even if it means we might bring in more people because of it. For example, you and I have seen over the last several years in our country the growth of an unbiblical view of marriage. And this view has continually grown even within churches. And whether this view this unbiblical view of marriage be homosexuality or cohabitation or, or getting a divorce just because it just isn't working out or because it's not what I thought it would be. See, many churches have decided to abandon what God's word says on marriage because it allows them to befriend and engage with non-believers. They will say this view of marriage, this This biblical view of marriage is what's keeping so many people out of our churches and away from God. And so if we change this, then they will come. And the intent may sound good, but the reality is that these churches are not, in fact, leading them to Christ. 
but they are simply just lending their approval to their sin. You see, as the people of God, you and I must not forsake God or his word, even in the pursuit of the lost. The king was called to protect and pursue peace with his nation, with the bordering nations, but not at the expense of faithfulness to the Lord. And having many wives did just this. Restriction number three. So we have not, not many horses, not many wives. Number three, not much silver and gold. Verse 17, again, we see where he says that the king must not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, money has provided a host of, of pitfalls over the years, and the king of Israel was no exception. Because you see, the, the truth remains, the fact remains, is that it doesn't matter how much money we have, there's always more to be had. I mean, listen, listen to what Paul writes, the young pastor Timothy. He says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, Paul's not saying that money itself is evil. Neither is is Deuteronomy. But it's what takes place in our pursuit of this money. It's what takes place in the king's pursuit of excess silver and gold. And it's the way that wealth works to warp our hearts in a way that we should be very, very, very careful in how we view and how we pursue and how we use money. See, if the people of God are called to be solely dependent on God, if Deuteronomy 6 is meant to be the driving theme that Israel is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, if that is to be the calling card of God's people, then there can be nothing which distracts them from that one singular focused love and devotion. Nothing. And money is just that. It is a distraction. It is a second love. See, think of it this way. If the king has every piece of gold and silver at his disposal, then in his mind, what need does he actually have for the Lord? If there's a problem, just throw money at it. If someone needs help, just give him, write him a check. If there's an enemy at the doorstep, just pay him tribute. Because, see, that's the issue. Wealth and riches remove any and every sort of dependence upon the Lord. Because the wealthy don't know what it's like to be in need. This is why Jesus says in his Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because to come to Christ, to come to God in faith in the gospel is to admit to ourselves and to the world and to the Lord, most importantly, I have nothing. I need you. 
And if wealth and prosperity removes this dependence and removes this sense of need, then let us be very careful not only in how we pursue wealth, but how we use the wealth that God has given. Do not believe for a second, church, that you are without need, despite what your bank account may tell you. So three restrictions. Horses, wives, and money. These are three things that the world would have looked at and said, that's what makes a king successful. A strong army, a large abundance of women, and lots and lots of money. That's how we measure success in a kingdom. But God would look at his people and say, my people do not need a king like this. So what kind of king do they need? Look at these three requirements. Verse 15, requirement number one, chosen by God. Chosen by God, beginning with with Samuel, who is the last judge prior to the first king. Every king in Israel's history was anointed by a prophet or judge in the name of God. This, this oil being poured over their head was a sign that God had, in fact, chosen this man to be the next king over Israel. And this event was no mere tradition or ritual. It was such a weighty, significant event. that There was no one doing it. Once the oil is poured, that person is the next king. And so when Saul, the, the first king of Israel, hears that David... Not his son, but David has been anointed to be the next king. Saul becomes so increasingly afraid of David that he tries to kill him multiple times. And what's significant here is that that we must remember that God is the one who appoints those who rule over, those who, who rule and reign. God is the one who plants kingdoms, who raises up kings from one corner of the earth to the other, not just confined to Israel. See, there has never been a king, queen, president, prime minister, or even dictator who has not reigned without God appointing him or her to that position. Romans 13, Paul says it very clearly on how we should respond to the authorities over us. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, it would be easy for us to look at that and say, yeah, well, that's, Paul, that worked for your day, but ours is different. Let me, let me remind you that Paul wrote this about a government that was intentionally seeking out Christians to murder them in a, in a public arena as the crowds cheered. And Paul says, submit to them, because God has appointed them for this purpose. God has given them their authorities. And so by submitting to them, you are submitting to God. And if you resist them, then you are resisting God. Now, God alone appoints, God alone delegates authority, and every authority is given by God. This is why the king of Israel, the king of God's people, must be chosen by him, anointed by him. Requirement number two, he must be a brother among you. A brother among you in verse 15. Verse 15 says that you, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You must not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. 
See, in Egypt, Israel suffered under the oppression of a foreign king. And in the promised land, Israel's king is guaranteed here to be one of their own. You will not submit to another foreign power in the promised land. I mean, let's just, if we took a straw poll of the room, does anyone here want a foreign nation to rule over you? Does anyone want a king who doesn't, who's not one of us to, to reign or rule over us? A president who's not one of our people, one of our own? Of course not. The Revolutionary War was, was fought for this principle. No taxation without representation meant that Americans did not want to be ruled over by someone who wasn't one of their own. And neither did Israel. And God says, you don't have to worry about that. Your king will be from among you. And I think this, this can be loosely, loosely applied to the church leadership as well. Church, churches don't need pastors who are not from among them. We, we live in a, a growing digital age where, where it would be easier for me to put a screen here and a projector and just show you a sermon from a pastor who can preach far better than I can. And he would give you the truths of God's word and he would exposit and teach and apply God's word in a far more powerful way. Believe me, he, there are better preachers than me. I have no problem admitting that. But there is a special joy and an honor and a privilege to be one of you and among you and leading you as one of your own. Because this is what churches need. We don't need screens and celebrities and pastors on a, on a screen. We need leadership who are among us, who are one of us. And the same can be said for pastors. It can be said for elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and all the way down the line. We desire and need to be led by those among us. And what a joy it is to do it as, a, as one among you. Requirement number three. He must be a student of the law. A student of the law. We see this towards the end of the, the section in verses 18 and 19. See, before there were bookstores, and really before Amazon ruled the world, books were a rarity. If you wanted your own copy of a particular book, you had to actually copy it by hand. Which meant you had to know not only how to read, but also how to write, which also was a rarity. And in addition to these rarities, you also had to have the resources like pen and paper, another rarity. Now, consider the book of the law. Now, when Moses talks about the book of the law, he's not simply talking about Deuteronomy or even Leviticus, but he is talking throughout the Old Testament. The book of the law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And these group books were grouped together as the law, as the Torah, because they were the foundation of Israel's history. This was their identity wrapped up in what God had told them in these books. And these books were kept. They were exclusively kept. There was only one copy. And these were exclusively kept at the temple, guarded, maintained, and read only by the priests. If you were a regular Israelite, you had no access to God's word except to go to the temple and have the priest read it to you. Unless you were the king. Because you see, the king, as we see here, the king was required 
not just to read the law, but to make his own copy of it under the supervision of the priest. I mean, most of us struggle to read the first five books of the Bible. How many of us want to undertake writing them all out by hand? But this practice of the king doing this conveyed a very important truth, both to the king and to Israel. In every other nation, it is the king, it is those in leadership who write and declare laws, but not so in Israel. The king does not write laws, he copies them. He does not give decrees, he copies them by hand. Because the king is not primary in Israel. God is. God is the one who determines what laws apply to Israel and which ones do not. And so the king studied the laws and decrees of God, who was, in fact, Israel's true king. Now, if we had time this morning, we could dive deeper into this, but let me just say this and move on. Because, you see, I, I'm like you. We, we like to live in this mindset of self-determination, self-actualization, self-everything. We like to live in the mindset that we determine what's best for us. We determine what's best for our lives, what's best for our kids' lives, what's best for our community's lives, what's best for their teaching and instruction, and all of it. But the reality is that there's, there's only one person who really determines these things, and you and I don't fit that bill. So instead of trying to live as... King and kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. What would it look like for you to become a student of the law of God and submit to his authority and submit to his kingship instead of trying to do it all yourself? What would it look like for your laws and your lives to be ruled not by your own ideas and authorities, but in submission to the laws and authorities of the Lord? Three restrictions, three requirements. I mean, really not that difficult of a list if you think about it. There's a whole host of things that we could add to it. If we, if we were thinking of making the ideal king, we could add all sorts of things. But when you look into Israel's history, I think the important question that, that we must ask is, has there ever been a king like this? Has there ever been a king who's avoided the three restrictions and kept the three requirements in Israel's history? And the answer is, sadly, no. I mean, just look at the, the history of Israel's kings and the three requirements. They failed them. Horses. Israel constantly depended on themselves. They made alliances, alliances with oppressive nations that built up their military at the expense of their dependence upon God. King after king after king depended upon horses. Wives, Solomon serves as this great example, and he should be. But, but so many others failed in the same thing. What about Ahab, who married that lovely woman Jezebel? And then, because of his wife Jezebel, successively hunted down all the prophets of God and killed them. Until there was only Elijah left. Then you have the the excessive silver and gold. Hezekiah, who 
who really, by, by all accounts, was a good king of Israel, of Judah, he sinned because he brought in Babylonian envoys and said, look at all of this gold in my house. He walked them through the temple and he walked them through the palace and he showed all the gold hanging on the walls and all the silver in the cabinets and he said, look at all of this. And it was after this that the prophet Isaiah came to Hezekiah and says, what is this you have done? Because you have showed Babylon all these silver and gold, Babylon will carry the silver and gold out of your house. They not only failed the restrictions, they failed the requirements as well. Chosen by God? Yes, every king was chosen by God, but even those appointed failed in their appointment. Saul, the first chosen king, was subsequently unchosen. 1 Samuel 15 says this, The Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king over Israel. A brother among, among Israel? In the exile, because of Israel's disobedience, the exile would lead to foreign kings ruling over them once again. They would be ruled by Assyria. They would be ruled by Babylon, by men like Nebuchadnezzar, a student of the law. This one might be the worst indictment of them all. From the period of the judges all the way to the king Josiah in Judah, who was the second to last king before all of Israel is exiled, there was not even a celebration of Passover in Israel. Not one. The kings not only weren't students of the law, the book of the law had been lost for generations. Just gone. Nowhere to be found. It wasn't found until Josiah, who decided to change and reform the temple, and he's cleaning up rubble and mess and dust and ashes in the temple, and one of the priests stumbles across this book. He says, look what I found. And Josiah, upon reading it, tears his clothes in repentance and mourning because he realizes what a great treasure they had lost. But even Josiah, this great Reformation king, ignored the word of the Lord when it came to him through a messenger, pleading for peace from God, and instead Josiah attacked them, attacked those he should have protected. And here's Israel left longing for another better king. They read through the books of First and Second Kings, and it is one disappointing king after another. And all you are left asking as you read and you're looking for the king to finally come, you are left going, is this it? Is this the king that we've been waiting for? Because surely there's got to be something more. Andrew Peterson has an incredible Christmas album. Uh, it's called Behold the Lamb of God. If you're looking for new Christmas music, that's the one. My family listens to it on repeat every season. And on, on this album, he has a song. It's called So Long, Moses. And it captures this history of Israel. And, and it's so good and so appropriate. I, I, I want to read, read it to you this morning. Because it's just tracing the history of Israel. It says, So Long, Moses. Hello, promised land. It was a long, long road, but your people are home. So long, Moses. Hello, Joshua. Goodbye, Canaanites. We're coming to town, 12 tribes and no crown. No crown, O oh Lord. And the chorus of the song says, We want a king on a throne, full of power, 
with a sword in his fist, will there ever be, will there ever be a king like this? Hello, Saul, first king of Israel. You were foolish and strong, but you didn't last long. Goodbye, Saul. Hail King David, shepherd from Bethlehem. Set the temple of God in mighty Jerusalem. He was a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in his fist. Has there ever been, has there ever been a king like this? Full of wisdom, full of strength. The hearts of the people are his. Hear, O Israel, was ever there a king like this? Hello, prophets. The kingdom is broken now. The people of God have been scattered abroad. How long, O Lord? So speak, Isaiah, prophet of Judah. Can you tell of the one, this king who's going to come? Will he be a king on a throne, full of power with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? Full of wisdom, full of strength. The hearts of the people are his. Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? He'll bear no beauty or glory. Rejected, despised. A man of such sorrows will cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness, carry our tears. For his people he will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils, our punishment feel. By his wounds, we will be healed. From you, O Bethlehem, small among Judah, a ruler will come, ancient and strong. Love that song. Because it is the cry of God's people for generations going, will there ever be a king like this? And this song finds its culmination. That question finds its answer in the advent, in the arrival of Jesus. Here is the true King, Christ Jesus, our King. And notice he keeps all three restrictions. Not many horses. Jesus didn't lead armies or conquer nations. He didn't, he didn't revel in the power of his, of his strength or in military or in horses or chariots. And yet... He defeated the greatest enemy that you and I have ever had, and he did it through weakness in his own death on a cross. He didn't have many wives. You see, yes, he he never married while he was on earth, but he does, in fact, have a bride, one bride. And this bride he is faithful to forever. And unlike Israel's kings, where the wives led the kings away, this bride does not lead him into sin but he leads her into righteousness. Not much silver and gold. Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And yet, as 2 Corinthians says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He kept the restrictions and he met the requirements chosen by God. He is the Messiah, which means the anointed one, the one chosen by God. At his baptism, when he was anointed by the Spirit of God, God called out from the heavens, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. He is a brother among us. Jesus, the God, became fully man, like us. He is one of us and yet not like us. Hebrews 4 says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has faced every temptation you have ever faced or ever will face. He knows every inch of it personally and deeply. And yet he alone is without sin. A student of the law, he wrote it. Of course, he's a student of it. Psalm 1 describes a man. It says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And on, his, on this law, he meditates day and night. Can we say anything? It's. Can we say this describes anyone except for Jesus? The same Jesus who stood in the temple as a child and he taught the scribes and the priests. The same Jesus who confounded the Pharisees who were career students of the law. But he confounded them at every turn. The same Jesus who put people in awe as they said after hearing him teach. Has there ever been anyone to teach the law like this? Church, tell me, in all of human history, has there ever been a king like this? But such a king we have. And he is a good king. Christ the king satisfies every longing, every desire, every deep groaning of every heart for and every person in every corner of the world. There is no desire in you that he leaves unfulfilled. None. He keeps every restriction and he meets every requirement. He is the king of kings, truly and completely. You have a king like this, full of wisdom, full of strength. The hearts of his people are his. And he will one day return with a sword in his fist. Once and for all to conquer his enemies. And his word tells us that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will audibly shout, Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord. The only question that this leaves us with then, the question that I will leave you with, is will you bend the knee to this king? Will you submit? And really, that question is not an if, but a when. Will you submit today in joy and in victory? Or will you submit on that day in conquered defeat? Pray with me. Father, you are good. Jesus, you are a good king. Thank you. 
Thank you that you meet every desire of our hearts, every longing, every groaning. For you are king. And what a joy it is to stand before you as our king and proclaim to you the wonders of your gospel, of your word. Help us, teach us what submission to your law looks like. Remind us as many times as it takes that we are not king. You are. We have a king who stepped down from his throne and got down in the dirt and muck of our lives and died as one of us, for us. There's never been a king like this. But we have a king just like this. May we make much of our king. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Every week we respond to the preaching of God's word by taking communion together. And so if you uh, need communion elements, Ron is at the back. Uh, Just raise your hand and, and he'll be glad to bring one to you. Um, communion is communion is is continued worship. Don't don't miss this. We are continuing in worship as we come to the table together. We are simply doing it in response. And so, as you come to the table, let me let me encourage you in a couple of ways. First, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, I'm not. Doesn't matter how old you are. If you're not a believer, then abstain from this table because it's not for you but we would love for it to be for you and so rather than come to the table and take this we would i i would personally encourage you to consider and take christ instead come to the king who saves and then join us at his table after christian whether or not you're a member of this church if you're a believer if you're a child of the king then you are welcome at his table because he has brought you near. And as we come to his table, we are reminded of what it took to bring us to this table. That our king did, in fact, die for us. He died for you. And there was no other option. He had to. Or else you and I could never be brought near without being crushed by our own sin and by the righteous wrath of God. Consider for a moment your sins, the times that you have refused to submit to the king, the times that you have gone your own way, the times that you have done whatever, gone against his law. Consider for a moment that this king died for you all the same. And in him you are forgiven. Your sins may be many, but his mercies, the mercies of this king, are more. The body of Christ broken for you. In this life, you and I are waiting. We live in what has often been referred to as the already not yet dilemma. We have already been saved. We have not yet been fully saved. We've already been redeemed. We've not yet fully been redeemed. 
Christ has conquered the enemy already. He has not yet fully conquered the enemy. And so as we live between this already and not yet dilemma, we wait. We cling to the already, and we wait for the not yet. And in that not yet, our king is coming. He is coming for you, his bride. And when he comes, he will bring you to him, and we will celebrate with him in great, great, unimaginable joy. To our king. We've got one more hymn to sing together this morning. It is hymn 148, Come Thou Almighty King. Will you please stand and sing? Come thou almighty king. Come he has and come he will. Our benediction this morning is in the the bulletin. It is our great commission. It is the king's final command to his people. We go here declaring that our, our king has come. He has died. He has risen again. And he will come again. So I invite you to say aloud the great commission with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth. Has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.